Well, today we are going to be finishing up a series we started nearly 20 weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' message is picture of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Next week, we'll be starting a series, uh, Bobby Joe alluded to, we begin the season of Advent, which is a time of waiting, a time of preparation for Christmas. And this series will be called Tear Open the Sky or Rip the Sky Open. It's a picture from the prophet Isaiah of the longing that we have. And so we'll be exploring the longings that we have, this desire that we have to wait for God to come and to rip open the skies, to enter into the world and to make a change as we prepare our way and prepare our hearts and ourselves for Christmas. But today we want to conclude our study on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And so a quick review as we come to the conclusion of it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus paints a picture of the kingdom of God. He portrays God's reign and rule coming and coming through and in him. And then he begins in this sermon to point and to paint a picture of what it looks like to live in this kingdom, of what it looks like as followers to be a part of this kingdom. He talks about those who are blessed. He talks about an upside-down kingdom, about the poor in spirit, and those who mourn and the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, those who are pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, and he talks about the way that God blesses in unexpected ways and also the ways that we're invited to live in unexpected and with upside down values. And then he reminds his followers that they are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that they're called to live differently, that they're called to be shaped and not conform to the world, but live differently and shine with the things that they do so that people see God and who he is. Jesus portrays himself as the one who fulfills the law. All that's come before, all that God has given, has been pointing to Jesus. And in him, it finds its fulfillment. And then he begins to describe and to show what those laws are all about. So he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and the oaths. And he talks about the ways in which that it goes beyond simply our external actions, but God longs to change our hearts. And he calls to change our behaviors. And that's what fulfillment of the law is. And then it comes and it's portrayed in Jesus. But then we only live that life through the power of Jesus. And then he talks about this radical way of living. Where we love our enemies. And bless those who persecute us. As another call to live this way. And he invites us to pray. Knowing that God is the one who hears and answers prayers. And then he talks about where we put our trust and our hope, not in treasures, not in other things of the world, but alone in God and trust in him for our provision. And that we don't try and engineer our way through judgment and condemnation. And then we come to the conclusion of the sermon and the passage that Carlina read earlier for us, where Jesus takes all these things and brings them together. And he brings them together in a series of parables and pictures. We covered one of these way back at the beginning of the series in July. And there's really a series of interacting pictures, and they kind of go back and forth, and they reinforce one another. So I encourage you, if you have your Bible, we're going to be jumping around a little bit to turn to that passage in Matthew chapter 7 and see how these two expand and work with each other and how Jesus brings this whole thing to a conclusion. How he takes all these things he's been talking about and begins to bring them home. And so he begins, first of all, with a picture of a gate. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, 
and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So the first idea that Jesus introduces is there are two choices. He begins to paint a picture, and he says, after he's given this long sermon, this long picture of what life in the kingdom looks like, of what it looks like to follow him, to listen to him, and to serve him as king, he says, at the end of all hearing all this, you have two choices. Not three, not five, not seven, but simply two choices. And then the fact that he says there are two choices implies what? We have to make a choice, right? If there's two choices, he's saying you choose one or you choose the other. And that's the kind of language he uses. So later on, you hear him talk about there's the true disciples and the false disciples. And you can build your house where? On rock or on sand. And so these two different pictures of the way to live our life. And he says, you have two choices. So that's the first idea as Jesus is bringing this sermon to a conclusion. He's saying, you have two choices. And the two choices are what? Really, Jesus paints it. He says, they're to do what Jesus said or not do them. Those are the two choices that he's talking about. And so he says it in two different ways. And 721, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So he's what? there's the people who do it and the people who don't. So doing the will of the father, he says, it's not about doing miraculous things or saying, Lord, Lord. He says, the choice is, do you do the will of God, the will of the father who is in heaven, which is what Jesus has just been painting, or do you not do it? And then he goes on and he kind of continues that same picture with these two builders. One who builds on rock, one who builds on sand. And he says, therefore, everyone who, puts, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And later on, he says, the foolish man is the one who hears the words and what? Doesn't put them into practice. So again, two choices. Do what he says or don't do what he says. Put the words into practice or don't. So we have a choice, two ideas, and the two choices are do what Jesus has just said, do the will of God, or don't do it. Obey Jesus in following his teaching. And he's saying not simply with our inner life. This isn't just sitting quiet, but with the interactions with the world we have around us. And there's a little corollary, a little side trail, a little rabbit trail that he takes where he talks about false teachers. And there he's not so much talking in terms of doctrine, but he says the people we should follow, we follow should demonstrate the life of Jesus. They should have fruit. In other words, if someone claims to be speaking for God, observe their life. This is one of those passages that for preachers is kind of scary to preach on, to talk on. Because it's saying, if I'm telling you what it looks like to follow God, one of your jobs is to watch my life and see if you see fruit in my life. Observe my life closely and see if it's matching up with what Jesus teaches. So a lot of pastors kind of like to skip over this part. But it's the reality of saying this is what it looks like. And it's also a way to say when we hear someone telling us about the life of Jesus, if we hear someone saying this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, what you want to do is look and say in their life, do you see a match between they, the way they live and the way Jesus calls us to live? Do you see a match 
a similarity, a synchronicity between their living and the life that Jesus lived? Or do you see greed and pride and hatred? And if you do, then you probably don't want to listen to what they're teaching. So then he comes back to this. And so we have, again, the ideas are we have two choices and the two choices are obey or don't obey. The third idea that Jesus kind of brings as he's wrapping this to a conclusion is there are consequences to our choices. We teach this to kids, don't we? It's one of the ways that we learn and help our kids grow is to know that they have choices, but every choice has a consequence. And so Jesus paints the consequences of the choices that we make. And so in the first one, he says, enter through the narrow gate. And if we take the wide gate, what does it say? It says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads where? Destruction. But the narrow gate leads where? Life. Or in the other one, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who does, the one who does the will of my father. So again, there's this choice and there's a consequence. You choose to obey, you choose to listen. It brings life and entrance into heaven. If you choose not to listen, it's destruction and not entering in. Or a picture again of the rock built on house is obeying what he said. House built on sand is not. The consequence of building on the rock is what? Life and living. You build the house on sand, it's destruction. So here's this picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, as you hear my words, as you hear the words of Jesus, as you hear what he has to say, you have to make a choice. And these choices have consequences. And they're not simple consequences like, oh, there might be a little bit of pain. He's talking about consequences for this life and for all of eternity. The, choice, the consequences of this choice are eternal life with him or destruction. That seems like pretty serious consequences, right? These are not minor consequences. So Jesus wants his listeners to do this because sometimes we hear the words and we think, oh, that's nice. It's some nice Jesus stuff. We put it on a mug or put it on a bumper sticker and put it on our car and think, oh, that's really so sweet. It's not just sweet. He's saying, Jesus is saying, I want you to listen to this. I want you to pay attention to what I have to say because there are consequences to the choice that you make. Do you choose to do what Jesus has said or do you choose not to? If you choose to do what Jesus has said, that leads to life and life with him. If you choose not to listen to him, if you choose to disobey, the consequence is destruction. So then he comes to the fourth part. And it goes back to that first one. We have a narrow gate and a narrow road and a broad road and a broad gate. What's that painting a picture of? One is, is it easier to drive on a narrow road or a wide road? Wide road, right? In other words, driving on a narrow road. How many of you have ever been maybe out west and you go through Colorado and stuff and there's those like tiny little roads that go through around the mountains and stuff. And usually they, what, no guardrails on the side? Kind of terrifying, aren't they? Switchback Switch turns, and you're wondering if there's a giant truck or a bus coming the other way. And narrow is the road, but he says that's the road that leads to life. In other words, following Jesus is not easy. He doesn't paint this picture and say, oh, you have two choices. Listen to me and do what I say or don't do what I say. If you listen, it's life. If you don't listen, it's destruction. And it's following me is really, really easy. 
He's saying no. He's saying doing this is hard. And if we have to go back to what he had to say, to be those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. How easy is it to be a peacemaker in the world in which we live? To try and bring peace to parties that are at war with each other, whether we can think of Israel and Hamas or maybe our uncle and our aunt who are at odds with each other. We have to step into the middle of a conflict and try and bring peace. Or how easy is it to live a life where we're not speaking evil against our friends and our neighbors? Where murder is not simply the physical act of killing, but the act of speaking harm against someone. Where adultery is not simply a physical act, but it's the ways we look at and objectify other people. Where swearing an oath is not simply the words that we use, but it's letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Where we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus has just painted a life of living that is not easy to follow. And he doesn't portray it as easy. He says, narrow is that road that leads to life. Narrow is that gate. Going into that is not an easy way. And he's saying it's not simply this mild association with Jesus. It's not saying, oh yeah, I know Jesus, but it's a radical commitment to him as King and Lord. Do what he says or don't do what he says. And so at this point, maybe you think, well, am I, are you preaching, Carl, and you're saying that we get saved by the things we do? No. We're saved by grace, by faith in Jesus, but we need to take seriously what Jesus calls us to do. That faith is expressed in obedience. As Dallas Willard refers to the idea of not being vampire Christians, he says. And by that, he means those who just kind of take advantage of Jesus' blood and say, oh, I'm saved. I got Jesus' blood, I'm good. But don't bother to live in a particular way. And so he's saying we're not called to be simply vampire Christians, but we're called to live this radical life that our, in Matthew Bates, this faithful obedience or faithful allegiance that when we decide to follow Jesus as king, when we put our faith in him, faith is expressed in the things we do. That's the book of James. It's saying faith is not simply a mental assent. It's not simply signing a doctrinal statement, but it's living a life of following Jesus. That's how we express our faith. Or as Glenn Stassen says it, he says it this way. He says, to hear these words and do them means to respond to Jesus as the bringer of God's reign by yielding one's life and loyalty in complete surrender to God. So to hear these words and respond is to yield our life and loyalty. He goes on, he says, and to live Jesus' teaching by focusing on God's presence delivering us and others from our captivity to our ways of self-destruction. So we're turning from this life of self-destruction. And we recognize that we fail sometimes. But what Jesus reminds us of is there is forgiveness in all of that. So how do we do it? How do we live this life that he's called us to do? That it's narrow and what we do is we do it with the power of God, with the power of the Spirit helping us through this. And so many times during this series, I've referenced Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian pastor who lived in the 1930s um, and lived through the rise of the Nazi regime and was an opponent to that regime. 
But what shaped Dietrich Bonhoeffer most deeply and led him to his resistance against the Nazi party was the Sermon on the Mount. Bonhoeffer had studied in Germany as a young man. He earned his PhD, I think, at the old age of 21. 21 or 22, I don't recall which. But he earned his PhD, and he was living, and he was teaching, but he needed something different, and he moved to the United States in 1930 and lived in Harlem and attended an African-American church, Abyssinian Baptist Church. And there at Abyssinian Baptist, they lived and modeled out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in his year of living among the people of Abyssinian Baptist, Bonhoeffer adopted the Sermon on the Mount as his framework, his way of living. He later wrote a book, often known as The Cost of Discipleship, or simply known as the book Discipleship, which is his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. But then Bonhoeffer returned to Germany and became a major opponent of the Nazi party. He formed an alternative seminary to call out the pastors who were submitting themselves to the Nazi party. The church was compromising its witness and, and looking to the Nazi party for salvation and, and mission. And so Bonhoeffer formed Finkenwald, a, an alternative seminary, and he talked about how that had to be stronger than what the Nazis were doing because it was easy to look at the Nazi party and, and look at the concentration camps and the size of the Wehrmacht and, and these large armies that were building. And it was easy to look at all that and see, that is overwhelming. How can we ever stand against that? And then Bonhoeffer looked at his little seminary. He said, this here, this seminary, this word of God, this life built on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount must be stronger than that referring to the Nazis and their power. And so Bonhoeffer shaped and grew these people and led into this resistance to him. And in his book, Discipleship, is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this. He said, as long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk. And this is kind of his conclusion where he's looking at this passage from Matthew chapter 7. He says, as long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk. And you hear this language of, this is what Jesus has commanded me to walk. And I try to walk in fear of myself. It is truly impossible. In other words, he's saying, if I try and do this on my own, if I try and live this life on my own, I can't do it. But he says, but if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me, step by step. If I only look at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. In other words, what Bonhoeffer called his people, the people he was writing to, and I think he's inviting us to do the same words that Jesus is inviting us to do, is to keep our eyes fixed on him. To fix our eyes on Jesus and see how he was living. To form a vision of our life. Again, back to Willard. Willard says we're all disciples of somebody, of something. We're all shaped and formed. In our modern society, we like to think, well, I have my own thoughts. I think my own way. I'm my own person. Where did you come up with that idea? From somebody else. We never live completely on our own. There are parents. There are peers. There are culture. There are all these things around us that are shaping us and forming us into the people that we are. And what Bonhoeffer is inviting us to do, and 
reflecting on the words of Jesus. And what Jesus is inviting us to do is to keep our eyes on him. To see him as the way to live. And we're not called to live his life, but we're called to live our own lives. In whatever role we have in life, whether we're retired or we're still working, we're students, wherever we are in life, we're called to live our lives as Jesus would live them if he were us. And so we're called to live into this life, and we can only do it if we have a picture, a shape of the life we're supposed to live. An artist, when they're creating something, forms a mental picture in their mind of what they're going to begin. And in the same way, what we're called to do is have a picture in our mind of the kind of life we're supposed to live. And the way we find that picture is by looking at Jesus. We're not simply responding to an ethical vision, a picture of do's and don'ts, but we're responding to the life of Jesus. We're responding to the one who is the king in his words. Talked also about this the same with Martin Luther King Jr., one of the leaders in the American Civil Rights Movement. Again, what passage of Scripture shaped his mind, his heart, the way that he led that movement? Sermon on the Mount. This way of living, of saying we have to live in resistance to the world around us, but it's a nonviolent resistance. It's not passive, but it's a nonviolent way of living in a different way, living an upside-down kingdom and demonstrating to the world. Or another man and his wife who lived during World War II, Andre and Magda Trachme. Andre and Tra Magda Trachme were, Andre was a reformed pastor living in France in 1940 when the Germans invaded and took over France. And one day Andre and Magna were in their home and there was a knock on the door. And standing at the door when they opened it, was a Jewish man who had escaped from a nearby concentration camp. Andre and Magda took in this man and they hid him from the Germans. And then Andre, who had been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and had adopted the Sermon on the Mount as the way of living for this little reformed congregation in the town that he lived in, of Le Chambon, he preached on this thing and he recognized that we need to do something. That our call is not to rise up in arms against the Nazi party, but our call is to live out this call of Jesus, this life of Jesus, this life of in the kingdom. And so over the next four years, until the Allies liberated France in 1944, Trochme and his small congregation and the people of that village began to bring in Jews they would hide them, they would feed them, they would find papers for them, they would find ways to, for them to escape to Switzerland. And the estimates are that in, the four year, in those four years, they enabled between four and 5,000 Jewish people to escape with their lives. Now that number is significant because that is actually more than the population of the town in which they lived. But it was all a life that was shaped and driven by the picture that Jesus had given of life in the kingdom. This call that when Jesus walked up on a hill and he sat down before his disciples and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he began to paint this picture of what it looks like to follow him and to live it out. And Trachme was arrested at one point. His, his cousin was executed. And so there were consequences to this. Again, there's a hard road and an easy road. 
But the hard road was the life of obedience. And Trachme and his congregation knew that what they were called to do was hard and difficult, but it was the call of Jesus. And so they began to live this life out. So it's Bonhoeffer, it's Martin Luther King, it's Trachme, and hundreds of others. And I think even we as Fruitland Covenant Church are called to hear these words of Jesus and to respond to them. To hear these words and know that we have a choice, that we can't simply hear the words and say, that was nice, good words, Jesus, that lifted me up for the day and head on home and do our own thing in our own way tomorrow morning. But instead, we're called to hear these words of Jesus and then begin to put them into practice, to build our life on them, to say, Jesus, what are you calling me to do? Now, I don't know what it looks like for each and every one of us. I don't know which area of your life that Jesus is calling you, but if you have that conversation with God, God can point you to where it is. Because when Jesus says, I want you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, I don't know who that is for you, but that's Jesus' call. When he talks about our hypocrisy and the way we practice our deeds and if we're drawing attention to ourselves or to God, I don't know what it looks like for you, but it's the call of Jesus. When he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven or treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, I don't know what that looks like for you, but that's the call of Jesus. And so Jesus invites us. He says, enter through the narrow gate. He says, don't focus on the miracles, but do the will of God. He says, build your house on the rock. Do what I have called you to do. Because this is the way to life. And the other path is the road to destruction. So he invites us to respond, not simply to his teachings, but we're responding to him. Because whoever hears these words of mine, and so what we're called to do is to live with Jesus as our king, to live under him and declare who he is by the things we do. And as we do these People will see that difference. I shared with the council a few weeks ago a book I've been reading called The Great Dechurching. And in The Great Dechurching, it talks about the change in the church over the last 20 years. And over the last 20 years, it talks about the nearly 10 million people who have left the church. One of the greatest exits of the church. And and they use the authors of the book talk about de-churching as people who used to attend at least once a month who now attend once a year or less. So these were people who were going to church at least once a month and now attend once a year or less. And it's nearly 10 million people. And it's for a variety of reasons, some because of hurt, but some have just kind of drifted away and faded away. And there are others who simply have grown up in the church and have turned away. But one of the leading causes for that is looking at people in the church and the way we live our lives. They see us talking about the life of Jesus, but they don't see us living it. Because Jesus has said early on in this message, he says, in the same way, this is chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That when we do what Jesus has called us to do, it draws people to God. Imagine a church, a little congregation. I imagine that Andre and Magna Trachme's congregation 
was no bigger than this. It may have even been smaller. But they chose to live a life of radical commitment to Jesus. And I have to imagine that the life they lived and the way they lived drew other people to Jesus. That Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the life he lived, that Martin Luther King Jr. and the life he lived and the movement that he led following the ways of Jesus drew people to Jesus. And so if we as a congregation were to live that way, we were to live this life of radical commitment to Jesus, loving our end. Just start there. Start with that one command and think, in 2024, how can I love my enemy? How can I pray for those who persecute me? How can I do to others what I would have them do to me? Those are the words of Jesus. Sometimes we try and take too much. What if we were to just take that command, that call. Jesus frames it another way in another place, to love your neighbor as yourself, but do to others what you would have them do to you. If we could just do that in 2024, how would it shape and change this congregation? But more than that, how would it shine a light? How would it draw people, other people to the good news of Jesus? We need the power of the Spirit to do that. So as we enter into this time of Advent next week, as we enter for the, and remember the coming of Jesus, may we invite Jesus again to come into our lives, to break into our lives through the power of his spirit and to change us to be this kind of people. To the, be the kind of people who are salt of the earth and light for the world, who live out a life of radical commitment, who do what Jesus has done. So may we Fruitland Covenant Church, build our house on the rock, doing what Jesus has said. May we have life and life eternal. Amen.